the E, the S, and the G aren't mutually exclusive, right? Like if you're thinking about a specific sector, the relevance, I think, of those E, S, and G factors is going to vary. So if you're thinking about energy, obviously E is kind of top of mind. Governance is relatively consistent across all different sectors and asset classes because I think good governance enables the positive E and the positive S improvements because you have oversight of all of those. But I think the conversation really comes back to how do you expect a credit analyst to be able to integrate ESG without some sort of assistance? And I think the concept of materiality really helps with that because you're not thinking of every single environmental, social, and governance factor under the sun. You're thinking of the ones that actually are financially material and relevant to the industry or sector that you're looking at. That was Sarah Monday, Bering's Director of Sustainability. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bering's. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 13 of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So on today's show, I spoke with Sarah Monday, Bearings Director of Sustainability, Natalia Kroll, Portfolio Manager on Bearings Emerging Markets Debt Team, and Greg Bailing, Head of Investment Grade Corporate Credit Research. Our conversation focused on the topic of ESG and fixed income investing, including how the teams here at Bearings are integrating ESG into their analysis and the challenges that they face in doing so. We talked about some of the nuances in applying ESG to different fixed income asset classes from IG credit to high yield to EM debt uh, and even to private credit. We compared and contrasted what active engagement actually means for fixed income managers versus equity managers. And Greg and Natalia gave some really interesting examples of real tangible impacts that fixed income investors are driving with corporate issuers. And finally, we talked about the concept of progress over perfection and how the use of exclusionary lists may actually result in missed opportunities to invest in companies that are making real progress on ESG measures. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Sarah Monday, Natalia Kroll, and Greg Bailing. All right, Sarah Monday, Natalia Kroll, and Greg Bailing, welcome to Streaming Income. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Good morning. So we're here to talk about the very important subject of ESG today, and and specifically within that ESG, within the context of fixed income investing. And I know the three of you have done a ton of work and have been very influential in terms of how Bearings thinks about this subject, in terms of constructing and continuing to iterate our approach. So I'd like to get into all that, but perhaps it'd be good to just start high level. And Sarah, I'd like to start with you as director of sustainability here at Bearings. I'm interested if you could just describe our approach as a firm to ESG and sustainability. And so our ESG being environmental, social, and corporate governance, why we're doing it, how we're structured, and maybe a little bit about your role uh, within the context of all of that. So my role is kind of unique in the fact that we cover both 
ESG integration into the investment process, as well as kind of the corporate social responsibility aspect of sustainability. So we think of it in three pillars, really um, integrating ESG into the investment process, which to your point is environmental, social, and governance factors, advocating for sustainability um, within the industry, within our clients, within the companies that we're investing in, and then educating stakeholders in the industry on ESG best practices. Got it. Got it. As we think about ESG within the context of fixed income, Greg, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about this. And I think, you know, you should have a really interesting perspective, I think, given that you've been operating in credit markets for 20 plus years. So I'd be interested, you know, even in your personal experience here in terms of how you've seen ESG kind of, you know, enter the stage here, when it did, how it's become increasingly important and how you've kind of seen that evolve over time. Yep. So I want to say, you know, maybe I started noticing it a, a decade ago or so, and it largely was driven out of uh, asset managers and, you know, clients that were looking for that sort of product in Europe and, uh, and specifically largely uh, Northern Europe. And, you know, they, they definitely still, I would say, are somewhat ahead of us in terms of integrating ESG into the asset management process. Uh, recently, I saw some uh, report, I think it may have been State Street, and it was saying that you know roughly 76% of equity asset managers had integrated ESG into the process, whereas uh, for fixed income, it's about, it was like 51% in Europe, Middle East, Asia, and only about 44% in the US here. So hmm. you know, geographically, there's been a real push and a focus, and it, you know, the drive really came from Europe. It's picked up here in the states in the equity side, and I would say it's accelerating in the fixed income side. It, you know, if I look at kind of potentially why that could have been, and again, this is just you know some of my theories, which you'll unfortunately hear a lot of today. <laughs> you know, it, it really did start if you think of the equity market. You know, globally, call it seventy-five trillion or so, and within Europe, fixed income is a corporate fixed income is kind of a, is a much smaller portion. So it's like two and a half trillion of uh, fixed income. Whereas in the U.S., it's about six and a half trillion versus you know equity seventy five trillion. So, kind of the market of influence, if you will, in Europe for the fixed income business, I, you know, I can see where it, it didn't make a lot of sense to really focus there off the bat. Whereas, you know, seventy five trillion of equities globally, it's uh, it's much easier to be effective. And then, you know, additionally, I think and importantly, it's equity versus debt, right? So, as a shareholder, you have the voting right. So you have much more ability to kind of theoretically encourage management or have a say with what management's doing and to lead the company in, in a different direction. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I want to get into that a little later too, just this idea of engagement, because I think there is this perception that as an owner uh, of the business with an equity stake, it is much easier to influence a business. But I want to talk about how, how debt holders can potentially influence businesses as well. What are you looking at in terms of the availability of data? And, you know, as your role of a head of credit research for the investment grade team here at Bearings, tell me about the availability of data and how that compares, I guess, and contrasts with what might be available in equities, for instance. Right. Well, you know, I, I think it, it depends in what product you're in. So in the fixed income side, for investment grade, you know, many of our companies do overlap with kind of the large and mid-cap equity companies. So you have fairly prevalent uh, data associated with ESG 
you know, largely due to kind of the, the, the push for disclosure over the last decade or so. And I think also importantly, with the, with the large and mid-cap companies, they have the infrastructure, they have the teams, they have the money to be able to pull together that information and that data and that disclosure and be able to kind of farm it out. I think additionally, if you, if you look at the third-party resources out there, you know, MSCI, Sustainalytics, because of that, they have very good coverage in the investment grade space, you know, call it 95% data coverage of our companies. Uh, which may look very different as you look into other asset classes within fixed income. Yeah, how does EM stack up on that measure, Natalia? Yeah, EM is a few steps away from the availability of data, I would say. So there's, there's several issues. One, we have a large share of our universe, which which is private. So the companies do not have any listed equity. So the interest in the data and the interest for these external providers to really dig into these companies has been non-existent pretty much until recently. We have a lot of companies that are state-owned, which which comes with the same problem. So I would say external providers probably cover around half of our universe, and that's really improved in, in the last several years. So we have to dig, we have to dig in ourselves. Yeah. So what is your, what is both of your perceptions just on the quality of the data? Because you mentioned a couple of the data providers. You know, are you confident that the, that the data that you're looking at is, is actually relevant and helpful to the investment process or are there challenges with it? I mean, I think it's relevant and helpful. I think the comparability of the data is really where the question is. You know, if you take it, if you take four energy companies and they're each providing, you know, certain disclosure that process isn't audited. So you're not necessarily going to get the exact same figures. So how you compare the data coming in, it's a little bit unknown, right? It's a little bit uncertain as to how, how one is, is relative to the other. But I would say having the numbers in the first place, having management teams that are focused on, on getting this to you, that's kind of the, the importance of it. At least that's a great first step. There are groups out there like SASB, um, that are trying to standardize some of this data, some of this disclosure. Um, and it, that's been a push for a number of years. I think that'll continue. You know, the, the industry definitely does want some standardization around uh, this disclosure. And I think eventually we'll get there as, as this becomes a larger part of the investable universe. I would add to that the data itself is, is when it's there, it's great in terms of the stats and, you know, emissions and kilos and whatnot. But the interpretation of the data and the scoring that these external providers are using are somewhat less useful to, to our team, at least, because A, it's not very consistent between the providers. And B, I think we get much better uh, result by just using the raw data and then interpreting it and speaking to the companies and to the management and sort of making sense of what it means for us and for our decision makings rather than taking a score um, and just applying the, the score as such. The scores themselves are inherently backward looking because you're taking kind of a fixed view in time and it doesn't really capture any of the forward-looking momentum that the company might have, any sort of increase in awareness from the management team. And that's not really our job. Our job is to be dynamic analysts thinking about how companies might progress over time. So Sarah, you know, we're talking mostly here about public corporate fixed income markets. We haven't really talked about private credit. That's obviously a big platform for us here at Bearings. We don't have any of our private credit colleagues on this call today, but you know, what do you see as being different or similar from a private credit standpoint? I think it's really interesting in the private credit space because to Natalia's point where, you know, half of EM companies are private, 
there's no disclosure. So there's no third party comparability that you could have from an MSCI or a Sustainalytics coming in and giving you kind of a, a sense check of data points of what might actually matter to that company. You have to do all of that analysis yourself. And it's also really interesting because in private credit, since it's an illiquid space and it's more of a buy and hold investment, the threshold and the hurdle for even kind of investing in a company in the first place is a little bit higher just because you don't have that liquidity in the market to get out of that investment if something turns sour. So the way that our team really thinks about ESG in the private space tends to be more of kind of a red line in the beginning, um, where if there's any sort of ESG risk up front, we're probably just not going to do the deal to begin with um, because there's less room for engagement and change and transformation past the initial due diligence stage. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think if you're if if you're holding an investment for five to seven years, that is critical to to sort of get right at that original um, underwrite. Well, Greg, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of of our process. You know, Natalia mentioned as as you all look at some of the third party data that comes in. You know, potentially it's more useful for you all to utilize the the raw data as opposed to rely on a third party's. Um, scoring mechanisms. So tell me, how do we do that? And maybe, you know, what's some of the key tenants, if you will, are of our approach? Yeah, sure. So I think at at, at Bearings here, we're, we're fortunate that, you know, we have decades worth of experience of being bottom-up credit analysts. And because of that, we had a kind of pre-forms, you know, Bearings credit grade, which really went through and evaluated six major factors or characteristics of risk um, when, you know, when looking at a company like, you know, cash flow, financial flexibility, industry position, governance. And so these are all baked into how we looked at name, the outline of how analysts uh, go through and analyze a name, put an internal grade on it, uh, how we compare it to other third-party resources, such as like, how does Moody's think about something or S&P think about it or Fitch think about it and have our own having the ability to have their own views, right? And to formulate that view. So as we got more involved in integrating ESG, it really was, it was more of a seamless process in that we really were just trying to integrate the E and the S. G was already in there. So, you know, it's a fairly seamless integration to pull E and S in. And the, the question then became, well, how do you do it, right? What's the outline for looking at E, e and S? How do you have an analyst who's never spent a lot of time on it before focus on it? And, you know, Sarah's team did an incredible job um, coming up with some outlines, some materiality mappings coming out of some of the third party, the Sustainalytics, the MSCI, the Fitch, really giving a, you know, an, an outline for what questions analysts should think about when considering environmental considerations or what questions you should ask when looking at social considerations. And you put that all together. And now we have an integrated system where you're evaluating, you know, the old legacy fundamental factors of risk, as well as, you know, the environmental, social, and governance factors of risk. One of the more important aspects of that is we also have attached an outlook to that. So just as in our normal bearings credit grade, and when we make recommendations as analysts here, as something can be improving, stable, or declining, similarly, within ESG and within the credit grade, you have the ability to express that. So as Sarah mentioned, you know, we try not to always focus on, on you know, backward looking uh, data points. So we'll look at the data and we'll, we'll make an estimation and we'll say, all right, this company behaved poorly over some certain time period. 
However, we've spoken with management, they've changed. This is what they're focusing on. So it's an improving story. So it allows for a more robust um, analysis and allows the analyst to make a much more insightful recommendation for portfolio managers. I think that's really the key of creating value instead of trying to be punitive and punish companies that aren't perfect right now because they happen to be in the energy sector, right, which is kind of inherently worse off from an ESG perspective due to more relevant environmental concerns that carry a lot more weight than something like financial services. It helps to be able to kind of take those best-in-class players and be able to differentiate through a sector kind of who's actually ESG aware, who's working on improving these things. And that's where I think the value creation aspect comes in instead of looking at ESG just as like a risk mitigation factor. So is it fair to say it's more about the direction of change as opposed to the absolute position from your standpoint? I think it's important to have both. You have to kind of understand the current state risk assessment, but I think that's something that really gets missed oftentimes when you're talking about ESG. It always focuses on the risk discussion, and I don't think there's enough credit given to the momentum and the direction of change. It all comes back to, you know, in, in the investing world, it all comes back to kind of that risk-adjusted return, right? And so if you're looking at a company that, you know, per, perhaps had a, a, an accident in a, in a mine or something and there were negative consequences, that company, right, they're, they're, there's the carrot and the stick. Like the, the stick is that they received a poor grade from Sustainalytics, from MSCI, from Moody's. The cost of capital went up, fixed income equity market cap reduced. But if a company then goes and, and, you know, makes changes and they focus and they change their mining techniques and they're trying to right their wrongs, then the carrot is there will be financing out there. And I think that's where it differs than, you know, maybe a decade ago where it was much more exclusionary and much more punitive. So as a firm, this is something that we've discussed for a, a number of years was, you know, what was our philosophy? Which side of the aisle did we want to be on this one? And I think we really choose to be on that more inclusive side, right? Working with companies, trying to be the arbiters of change. And, and maybe, you know, I'm, we're going to enjoy from that greater cost of capital through greater return, greater yield. But at the some point, at the same time, like we're going to offer financing to those companies and to those management teams that are trying to make a difference and, you know, maybe just had a history that, that wasn't all that favorable. And that's, and that's where the value creation is at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, re- it actually reminds me of a paper that our colleagues on the EM Sovereign team put out a couple of months ago where they were talking about at, at a sovereign level exactly this point and looking at some case studies. I think El Salvador was, was one of them where they were looking at countries that faced some real challenges from an ESG perspective, but the building blocks were in place and the momentum was in place that things seemed to be really turning in the right direction. And, and from an investor standpoint, I think they were, they were more comfortable from that perspective, given that all the momentum was heading in the right way. I know there is some debate out there in terms of the right way to approach this for different investment managers, whether or not it makes sense to have this live with a credit researcher or if there should be a standalone ESG team that's doing all this work. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I'm curious, just even like from the day-to-day workflow standpoint, how do our research analysts actually handle this? When you think about like the concept of ESG integration, I don't think you can be truly integrated when you just have a separate team of analysts coming in and doing an overlay 
on top of the existing investment decision. And that doesn't work because you can be as great of an ESG expert as you want, but the nuance between different sectors and across asset classes is really difficult to capture and just kind of a silo. So when you think about sector analysts that know their sector super well, they know their asset class really well in EM and IG, then you actually have that value creation that the analyst can bring to the table by saying, I know my sector really well, so I know which E, S, and G factors are going to matter much more than someone in you know a high-level kind of generalist role. So I think it's important to, to marry those two. At Bearings, we're lucky that we are very well-resourced teams, so we have we have many analysts and they have the capacity, I think, to really dig down deep into their companies and add on top of that the ESG. Maybe other places that don't have that luxury, then they, they have to rely more on the third party for various things. But I think ultimately, it, it, um, you, know, you have to do it yourself. And, and, I, and I think importantly, you know, what's missing in the discussion is when you have analysts that have experience in the same industry, that means you have analysts that are experienced with the same companies and the management teams. And I mean, I've been speaking to some management teams for 10 years, you know, 20 years. And like, whereas people may come and go, companies at the end of the day have personalities, they have characteristics, right? They, they thematically move in certain directions. They, they've, they've reacted similarly through cycles. And so as an analyst, you get to know that personality, you get to understand it, you get to understand like what they're willing to do, right? Is this a, is this a management team? Is this a company that has the DNA to accept change, to accept, you know, growth? Um, and, and it's different. And if you, if you take that out, right, if you extract that and you're just trying to make these calls based on backward looking data points through, you know, an ESG overlay team, you miss that, right? You miss the kind of the, the humanistic approach or the, the organic approach of that company coming up with that, that holistic picture of this is the company, this is how they behave, this is how they're willing to behave, and this is what they're willing to do to get there. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, I think this approach just, you know, my, my kind of sense of Bering's philosophy that's been in place for, for, for decades around how to you know, do credit investing from the get-go is is to Natalia's point to have large teams, to have individual analysts covering, you know, probably less credits maybe than than industry average, uh, and really getting their hands dirty and getting to know these companies. To Greg's point, oftentimes over a very long period of time, could be decades. Sarah, one topic that we sort of brought up to some degree earlier, but I wanted to dive into a little more was this a concept of materiality. And I hear, I've heard your, you and the teams uh, talk about this quite a bit. So explain to me what you mean when you're, when you're thinking about materiality in the, in the context of ESG. I think it, it's sometimes difficult to explain, but it really tries to get at the concept that the E, the S, and the G aren't mutually exclusive, right? Like if you're thinking about a specific sector, the weights that you or the relevance, I think, of those E, S, and G factors is going to vary. So if you're thinking about energy, obviously E is kind of top of mind. Governance is relatively consistent across all different sectors and asset classes because I think good governance enables the positive E and the positive S improvements because you have oversight of all of those. But I think the conversation really comes back to what we were talking about earlier is how do you expect a credit analyst to be able to integrate ESG without some sort of assistance. And I think the concept of materiality really helps with that because you're not thinking of every single environmental, social, and governance factor under the sun 
you're thinking of the ones that actually are financially material and relevant to the industry or sector that you're looking at or geography or jurisdiction. I think that relevance um, and importance is really significant. You know, the other concept, we touched on this a little earlier, this concept of active engagement. And and, uh, Greg, I think you mentioned that perhaps it's been easier or there's a perception that it's been easier for for equity holders to to engage, to, to affect change among issuers. Tell me about what's possible, I guess, from a fixed income perspective. Yeah, so I, I think... I think intuitively, you know, what one's gut instinct is that it, it makes a lot more sense in equity and or the private markets, right? If, if you're doing small private lending, um, microloans, then you have much more say, right? You're, you're in front of management personally in, you know, private loans or private debt or in large cap, you are at least you're a large equity holder, right? You have large, you have large amount of shareholder votes, equity activism, you can kind of push what you want, or at least you can make enough noise to push management in a certain direction. And I think what people forget about the fixed income markets, though, is, and certainly within the IG space, but unlike equity, the, these companies are serial issuers. So they're coming to the market, you know, sometimes 5, 10, 15 times a year. You know, there's over a trillion dollars of issuance every single year. And, you know, the larger the investment grade company, the larger these issuances. So they're coming out doing 5 billion, 10 billion of issuance. You have the ability to get in front of them. You have the ability multiple times throughout a, a year, you know, five years, a decade. You have the ability to be in front of them and to discuss that cost of capital, to discuss their current operations, ideally where you'd like to see them go, you know, the, the type of business segments that they're involved in, looking at growth, where should, you know, where should they be looking and how should they be looking to attain it. So I think because of the re- recurrence of that issuance, you have a lot more power than you think. And again, whereas you know the bond market's huge, the, the corporate bond market is it's only like you know close to nine trillion or so. So if you're issuing a billion plus a year out of nine, that's important. So you have a, a high percentage chance of really affecting uh, management if they have to stand in front of you every single quarter and issue new debt. So certainly, I would imagine that would affect the the cost of capital, as you say. So the interest rate that the companies will have to pay to get that to get that debt uh, issued. But have you seen examples? And I don't know if this would be the case in the investment grade world, but I would guess maybe more in high yield or EM, where the ESG violations, for lack of a better word, have been to a point where the company can't get the issuance away. Period. Yeah, I, um, I can add certainly on the EM side, I think in terms of the power of investors and the power of the bondholders, definitely it's, it's quite strong, I would say. So in EM, we have a range, you know, we look at the whole rating spectrum. We have IG companies, and obviously these are maybe slightly trickier in, 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 in the sense of our ability to influence um, them, the ones that issue multi-billion, you know, in, uh, tranches and established and listed, etc. But we have a huge universe of high yield companies, smaller companies, debut issuers. So our universe is expanding very, very rapidly. Every year we get tons of new companies that are trying to access the market. For them, um, a lot of them are private or state-owned that are kind of uh, migrating towards privatization. We are their dress rehearsal, so to speak, of being in the public eye. Um, Nobody knows how to price these companies. There's, there's price discovery where our feedback, I think, is very important for these guys. And this is our chance to drive some of the improvements and changes. So very often we get, we get companies coming to see investors before they issue. 
for what they call non-deal roadshows. And this is really to exchange ideas and feedback of what it would take us to look at them to invest. And this is where we say, you know, these are the things that we require. This is the disclosure standard that we would like to see. This is the governance points. These are the policies that we would like to see in, in place, etc. And very often they go back, they do their homework and they come, they come in, you know, a few months next year and, and it's much improved and this becomes an investable story. So that's definitely where we can influence quite materially um, the, the, the companies and what's going on. And there's a very often an example of, of a deal that couldn't price in the market because university investors said this is an ESG uncomfortable situation, whether it's environmental, whether it's social, whether it's most mostly it's governance in our world. And the companies are, are not able to place uh, to place the bonds in the market. They have to go back and, and, you know, improve or maybe they can't come at all. There's been a few deals that have been pulled because they, they could not get enough enough interest in it due to the fact that it was thermal coal or what have you so it's it, it has happened and, and i think you know quickly i'll throw in also the 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 importance of the subject and the interest in you know the investable public and the interest from uh, analysts such as ourselves that has also bled over into the rating agencies so you know for the first time maybe it was a couple of years ago i saw moody's really make a to me it was a strong esg decision on vale where they knocked it down into high yield territory due to some uh, horrific uh, mining, accident, mining accidents. And whereas all the credit, you know, kind of the fundamental credit metrics that one has traditionally looked at would say it's an IG credit, they knocked it down to high yield. And, and that right there, right, that, that dramatically changes your cost of funding. That dramatically changes who can buy that, who's forced to sell that. So, you know, it, it really is, it's, it's a combined effort. And like going back to IG, it's bookend. You have large equity investors pushing on management. You have large investment grade investors pushing on management, and they're stuck in the middle. And so, if if they don't make changes, like the, there are repercussions in, in kind of cost of capital and or uh, market value. I, I think that too. It just really ties back into the theme of progress over perfection that we always talk about. You think about engagement. You oftentimes equate it with like equity holder shareholder activism. Um, but when you what you're really trying to do is to improve disclosure or change behavior, right? And so the way to do that isn't by leaving a C student as a C student and just ignoring him and saying, I'm going to write you off because you're forever going to be a C student. It comes through being a good teacher and engaging with that student and trying to help them improve to become an A student. That's where you kind of create the value, both in being recognized for being a great teacher and also in being recognized by improving that student who can go on to do great things in life because you actually took the time to try to engage and improve their behavior. What she said. Well said, well said. <laughs> you know, the other thing that we didn't uh, talk about, Natalia, is just, you know, how ESG and the way that we're approaching it factors in to... Um, actively managed funds versus passively managed funds. And it's pretty obvious to me that based on the way that you've described it to me today, that this is kind of integral to to this, to an active approach. But tell me uh, how you think maybe active and passive are differentiated in this category. Absolutely. So I think active is what we've been discussing today. And this is very much what every team at Bearings does. And this is what we do sort of, we do it ourselves, we dig deep, we, you know, we get involved and we really understand what's, what we invest in. The passives, now, I don't know how they do it. 
I would I would imagine they are more um, in the cap of excluding sectors or specific companies because they show up on various blacklists. Um, they probably are relying a lot more on the third party uh, data and stats. So very often, um, actually, we get questions from clients asking us, so we see this company XYZ in the portfolio um, where we are invested, but we see it come up on the blacklist so and so and so we give our explanation telling them that we're we're not excluding sectors we're not going to exclude the whole universe of coal mining just because it's coal mining we're going to look for the best ones we're going to look for you know for the for the good teams the good management teams that are the best in class operating within that within that sector but we're not going to cut off just because it's in in the sector so um i think this is a difference and definitely i would imagine that active management you follow the companies you follow their evolutions you pick the ones that are improving and ultimately, that should produce better returns. And I think that coal example is really important because it comes up all the time when you talk about ESG. I mean, obviously, it's really bad for the environment, right? But there's this concept of the just transition that I think is really important because developed countries still need coal. I mean, you can't just get rid of it today and then say, sorry, guys, you can't. You have to shift to nuclear energy or you have to start using some renewable source and then pause that development. And that's not really fair to punish a country for not having developed quite as quickly or as fast. And so you have to think about, yes, the E is important, but what is the social implication of not investing in coal anymore? So it's, it's a much tougher situation than just black and white. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that the, the concept of a passive ESG fund is just really, to me, it's somewhat flawed. I just, I don't know how you could do it and make and make those de- decisions, being able to get the value out of it, right? I mean, because the, the value at the end of the day, as we've I think reiterated a few times here, is is about seeing that directional shift and understanding it and being involved and encouraging it and in, in a passive manner. I just don't know how that's possible. Yeah, I would I would imagine if you're blacklisting entire sectors or even blacklisting certain companies, you. you you no longer have that carrot out there for them to improve. So, so that's that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, Sarah, as we look across, you know, how we're implementing ESG across our fixed income business and, and even broader uh, to include equities and other asset classes like real estate at bearings, we're holding these companies to pretty high standards, I would say. And I'm curious, have we kind of turned the magnifying glass around the other way? and looked at ourselves by these same uh, standards? And if so, I'm curious how we as a, as a firm would, would score. I mean, it always comes back to that concept of trying to walk the talk. Like it doesn't mean much if you're holding a company to a certain standard that you're not upholding yourself to. So we actually did do a project uh, maybe a year or so ago, taking one of our, our, actually our equities methodology and scoring the company ourselves on the nine different factors that the equity team really think are the most important um, ES and G factors. And I always come back to these pithy lines, but this it really to me is about the journey rather than destination. Because if you are a firm that's out there saying, we're perfect at ESG, we've got it all figured out, I don't think you can truly be credible. I think you have to be transparent and accountable to yourselves in order to be credible. And so that transparency and accountability is really what we're trying to focus on now, saying that, you know, we're not perfect at this stage. There's a lot of things that we need to work on from, you know, the environmental sustainability of our offices, 
our London office is a gold standard, but we've got work to do across the U.S. and North America. You know, we, when you think about diversity and inclusion, we're not perfect right now, but those we're taking active steps to try and get to a better place. And so I think that that concept of trying to stay humble and focus on making incremental steps toward change and progress is really important. And that's something that we expect from our companies and we also have to expect from ourselves. Yeah, very well put. And I would just say anecdotally, you know, going back to that idea, the direction of change, I think it's very palpable for all of us who who work with the firm that we feel it every day and every firm-wide communication and everything else. Um, some of the important factors that that Sarah just mentioned. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, I wanted to finish up, you know, maybe just asking Natalia and Greg for you to kind of sum it up from your perspective in terms of, you know, from an investor's standpoint, thinking about ESG as part of their fixed income allocation. You know, what are some some of the things, you know, they might just want to keep in mind for the months and and the years ahead? Sure. I think overall that the advice I would give to investors would always be to invest with managers that are active managers that have resources available to them to do what they say they do, which is do the bottom-up, very detailed groundwork that incorporates ESG. And whether the um, whether the client whether the investors you know have specific ESG mandates that have specific restrictions around them or conditionalities around them that's one thing, but just that your uh, usual fixed income investments should go to managers that integrate ESG as part of their work that's that's central to their analysis and these managers are able to pick the better risk reward credits. For, for the investors. And ultimately, I'm sure the industry will evolve and, you know, 10, 20 years from now, we'll have books and papers that compare good ESG scored credits with less so and how this how this has impacted performance. I don't think the industry is there yet to say clearly that this is the statistics and this is the proven maths behind it. But I, but I do think the good ESG just makes good business and good businesses produce better returns over time. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think in, you know, five, 10 years, there, there's not going to be this you know, nomenclature of ESG, right? It's just going to be, that is going to be the new traditional fundamental credit analysis, right? All we're really doing is taking a deeper look. All we're really doing is looking at more risk factors, which is our job as an analyst. Like I, I always tell our analysts, even, even if this whole thing were to quote blow over and we never had any ESG products as a firm and, you know, we had no skin in the game. Like you still are just becoming a better analyst. You're you're doing your job in a more robust, more thoughtful manner, and that that at the end of the day should, like Natalia said, like that should lead to better risk-adjusted returns over time. Natalia, Greg, Sarah, we've covered a lot of ground here. I, I've certainly learned a lot. I think it's it's such an important discussion. It's it's one that continues to evolve, and I know we continue to evolve almost on a daily basis in terms of our our thinking and our advancement here. So. Uh, I'm sure we will have further discussions on this topic in the future. Finally, two things I would say. I want to congratulate these three guests for for achieving the first three guest episode of Streaming Income. And I think we pulled it off. And then secondly, I know you all have been collaborating on a paper. I think it's called uh, The Intent Beyond the Income that is uh, set to be released in the next couple of days that covers a lot of these issues Uh, maybe even in more granularity. So look for that on bearings.com under the viewpoint section. But Sarah, Natalia, Greg, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to episode 13 of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.